Well, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. The sermon series is called Let's Go Change the World. We're in the book of Acts. And the title of the sermon today is Do You Believe in Miracles? Well, do you? Do you believe in miracles? When I was growing up, there was a song on the radio called All I Need is a Miracle by Mike and the Mechanics. We also would see commercials back in the 80s, uh, Publishers Clearinghouse commercials. You remember those? Miracles can happen. They can happen to you. Publishers Clearinghouse will make your dreams come true. When I think of miracles, those are the things that immediately kind of come to mind. People are really interested in miracles. Let's face it, though. Today, most people would dismiss the miracles in the Bible. You believe in that mythical stuff? The, the legends? The, come on now. Come on now. Come on now. It's foolish to believe such things really happen. People back then were so superstitious and gullible. They believe anything. In this rational age, we know better. So today's sermon is going to be somewhat apologetic. And I love it when this opportunity comes up, you know me, because I want you, and I want the next generation, the kids, the teenagers, the college students to know that church is the place you can bring your questions. So, you know, at the end of an apologetic message, we send the microphone out into the audience, that's you, and we're going to do a Q&A at the end of the sermon. So if you have questions about what we're learning about today, anything really, but what we're learning about today specifically, I would love for you to ask your question. Can you defend your belief that miracles are true? Do you know why miracles happen? Do you know why they don't? And since we're dealing with a miracle today of healing, how does that play into it? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And why doesn't God just heal everybody right now? Wow, we're going there to get today. Let's pray and then we'll get into Acts 3 together. Jesus, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. What a wonderful story we'll hear about today. A man who was lame from birth in his 40s, never walked a day in his life, and you miraculously from heaven gave him healing we pray that you would guide our time in your word. Show us how this applies to us today, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., and a man lame from birth, we know later in his story that he's over 40 years old, all right? So anybody in this room over 40 years old? My hand is up. Okay. So this isn't a guy who like ran out from some distant town and sat down on a mat and then faked it. I can walk. All right, this guy's been there his whole life. Man lame from birth was being carried. Just, just for a moment, imagine that's been your, as long as you've been alive, that's your life. You want to go somewhere? Somebody's carrying you. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So he's a beggar. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He would not have been allowed in to the courts of the temple prior 
This is the first time in his life he gets to leap in there and praise God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Wow, what an incredible story. This guy, 40 years plus, has been carried everywhere. And finally, finally, the day comes where he is healed miraculously. But even better, it says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know has made strong. We don't know the mechanics internally of him, but we know that he believed in Jesus. We know that he had faith in the name of Jesus Christ. It's through that divine encounter that he, he was physically made well and spiritually he was born again, became a child of God. What an incredible story. All right, let's start by asking a tough question. This guy was sitting there for over 40 years, lame from birth. Let's start there. This guy theoretically was there throughout Jesus' life and was born around the same time Jesus was. So the first question I would have, the first question a skeptic might have, is why was he suffering in the first place? Jot this down. Here's a question we have to ask. Face the problem of pain. If God is so good, why does he allow so much suffering? Peter and John show up, see this guy. It's kind of about time. Like, what's been keeping them? If God could have healed this guy a long time ago, and why was he even born this way in the first place? Here's a picture of kind of a beggar uh, a group of what we would see on the streets of Chicago when we think about a poor beggar. This guy wasn't homeless, but he was poor, and he didn't have anything except what was handed to him, and he had to be carried around everywhere. This was his life. This was his life. I think a good starting point for understanding the will of God and miracles is, well, why is there even pain and suffering in the first place? Could you answer that question? If God's so good, how come so many people do suffer? This guy spent his whole life on the floor. <clears throat> Back in Jesus' day, they would have assumed that this man was disabled because he was a sinner. He did something, or probably his parents, if he was born that way, something really sinful happened, and therefore suffering meant this guy was being justly punished. A lot of people feel that way today. If I'm suffering, it's probably my fault. Why me? What did I do? Um, we have to face the problem of pain. If God is so good, why does he allow so much suffering? Jot this down. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. 
God is not the blameworthy cause of all the suffering because it ultimately goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we were warned not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were offered access to the tree of life and humanity fell into sin by our own folly. Therefore, the fall has impacted every area of life and nature. So God is not the blameworthy cause. He actually instructed us against it, but he's allowed it. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. Maybe you are suffering right now in some way. Maybe you're sick, you're hurt, you're unemployed. Uh, Maybe your car died. Maybe your relationship exploded. Maybe the kids are giving you trouble and you wonder why. Why is life so hard? Maybe someone you love is suffering. One of the pastors that we know, uh, Matt Townsend from a church in Philadelphia that we helped to launch many years ago, just past week fell into this. He, He had a seizure, fell down, hit his head. He's been in the hospital for several days now. They're running all sorts of tests to see what's, what's going on. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. Now, take heart. Your trial is absolutely under God's providential watch and permission. Your trial is absolutely under God's watch and, uh, and his permission. But it's very rare in the Bible when God afflicts someone supernaturally where an angel comes with a sickness or, or death. It's very rare in the Bible when your trial is supernaturally ordained, like Job, where they're talking about him in the councils of heaven, and Satan himself goes down to start taking care of some hard things in his life. That's very rare. More often than not, it's what Scripture calls the reap-sow principle. It's just the natural outcome of life, choices, and nature. Generally, your pain exists naturally because we live in a fallen world. Therefore, your suffering merits compassion from a holy God and compassion from godly people. That would have been the opposite of what this guy was given. He would have been given the, you know, the, the eye. Like, I don't know what you did wrong. You had to do something. There was no compassion. So he had to beg to make his, his way in the world. Jesus made it clear. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. If the most perfect person who ever existed had great trials and was a man of sorrows, guess what? You'll have trials too. Pain exists because we live in a fallen world. Jot this down. God uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. God uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. This is why you suffer. Now, there might be other reasons why, but the primary reason why you suffer is so God can display his powerful presence in your life. I want to say that again. The primary reason why you are suffering is so God can display his powerful presence in your life. That is the top of the list of why God is allowing pain into your life. In John 9, 1 to 3, I think we'll put it up on the screen, the disciples uh, went along and Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Do you see their thinking? poor blind guy is just out and about. People are like, wow, who messed up? Was it him or was it his parents? In other words, this guy's clearly cursed by God. And that's such a wrong theological view. The book of Job cleared all of that up. Job was the most righteous man on the planet. And that's why there was this devastating suffering that came into his life. So that God could show his faith. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Listen, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Look, I just really need you to take comfort in that. 
I don't know what it is that's painful in your life right now. I don't know how you got there. I don't know who's responsible. It doesn't matter. Why? It's answered right here. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in your life. Tell yourself that a million times. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in my life. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in my life. But you don't understand. They did this and said this, and this happened that the works of God might be displayed in your life. But it was so unfair. This happened. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in your life. Take comfort in that. That's a vertical view of your suffering. There's all sorts of horizontal things that, yes, are very important to sort through and understand. But vertically, the works of God are going to be displayed in your life. God uses this pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And he modeled how suffering enriched and displayed his relationship with the Father. God uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. There's a resource I found that's called 30 Reasons That Believers Suffer in This Life. We'll put it up on the screen, but you're not going to be able to read it because there's so many on it. Maybe we can send this out to you. I've got to get a little closer. 30 Reasons Why Christians Suffer to Encourage Us to Pray, to Keep Us from Pride, to Prod Us to Depend Upon God, to Deepen Us Spiritually and Focus Our Attention on God's Word, to Urge Us to Obey Him, to develop patience, perseverance, to promote spiritual maturity, advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring praise and glory to God, demonstrate the genuineness of our faith, enable us to comfort others, increase our desire for heaven, experience Christ's power in us, reveal God's work, chastise us in cases of willful rebellion, teach us to follow Christ's example, to experience God's care, to keep us on the right path, silence Satan's accusations, deepen our confidence in the Lord, fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, participate in Christ's glory, experience God's comfort, give us wisdom to take ownership of God's interests, to reap what we sow, to see with whom we are identified, Jesus, and not be ashamed of that identity, to rejoice and testify of Jesus Christ to a world that hates him. God has a plan for your pain. God has a plan for your pain. William Lane Craig, one of the foremost defenders of the faith, a real intellectual who can debate anybody. We've got a picture of him. He debate anybody about anything. He debated Christopher Hitchens, one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. And he was interviewed by Lee Strobel in the book The Case for Faith or The Case for Christ. And Lee noticed William Lane Craig's discomfort as he was just sitting there. And he said, why are you, are you, are you unwell? Are you sick? Are you, are you hurt? And William Lane Craig said, well... I don't talk about it much, but I have a muscular degenerative disease. Really? Oh, yeah, I had it from childhood. It's genetic. And, and so it, he's written some articles about this, but his, his nerves, his muscles break down over time. His, his hands, his feet, it works its way up in the body. Can't be cured. So from early on, he couldn't play sports. You know, when you can't kind of feel your hands, you can't play sports. And he said, I, I was really just, even though I wanted to play sports and, you know, to be like the other boys and... He said, this, this disability threw me into the world of academics. He said, and if I didn't have it, I would not have the capacity to go all in on developing my mind. He said, my body's breaking down, and so I, my whole life is now based on my mind. He thanks God for this because he realized that it was a part of God's plan to form him to serve Christ. God uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. Jot this down. Suffering well brings glory to God. Since it's a universal experience and we will all suffer, 
We must suffer well. I don't know what you're going through right now. It might be routine troubles, like car problems, scares with your kids. Maybe it's serious health issues. Maybe you've lost someone recently. Maybe there's the financial stress that the whole world is feeling right now. Or maybe it's the agony of relational trauma that could often be worse than physical pain. When people betray you or falsely accuse you or abandon you in your time of great need or those you looked up to fall away into grave sin. We'll suffer because of ourselves. Our own folly causes pain in our lives and in the lives of others. Whatever the cause, we must suffer well. We must humble ourselves, repent, own our place in this world, and God will be glorified as he restores us. Suffering well brings glory to God. And jot this down, all pain has an expiration date for believers in Christ. All pain has an expiration date for believers in Christ. This man's pain had an expiration date because he would become a believer in Christ. The day would come when he would walk and leap and dance on the streets of gold. That was already decided. God just decided to move it up a little bit. You need to know that the Bible calls our suffering in this life, if you are a Christian, light and momentary. Now look, I know that that can make you feel insulted. How on earth can you call, can you call what I'm going through light and momentary? This is, this is measured against the glory that God has promised you forever and ever and ever and ever. There will be a day, an expiration date, when this trial expires and it will, it will be something that doesn't come to mind anymore. God will eliminate every tear from your eyes. All pain has an expiration date. Paul Tripp, maybe you know him, he's one of the foremost counselors in the nation, he wrote a book called Suffering. He didn't expect one day when he woke up and started experiencing agonizing pain to end up in the hospital, but he, he was having kidney failure. And um, over the next two years, he would have six surgeries that would simply spare him death, but would put him in a bodily state where he, he woke up to the reality that he would never be healthy again. And he gets maybe four good hours a day, ongoing treatment to maintain his body. Um, wrote a, he wrote a book called Suffering, and I don't know if we have a picture of him or the book, uh, but he has many resources on how we can suffer well. But his faith is held up by the reality that he knows his pain will be done one day. One last quote, Charles Spurgeon, one of the best thinkers in Christian history, said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I would commend that to you. So what we did just now is we just sat with this guy, okay? 40 years, 40 years of being carried around, 40 years of being accused of being more, it's your own, it's your own fault, maybe your parents messed up, I don't know what it is, but look, look at that guy. God must be really unhappy with him. 40 years of that. And we just kind of walked around what the Bible has to say about suffering. Face the problem of pain. If God is so good, why does he allow so much suffering in the first place? Well, we live in a fallen world. He uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Christ. Suffering well brings glory to God. And all pain has an expiration date for believers in Christ. All right, number two, let's go on to another question. Let's face the problem of miracles. Write this down. Miracles contradict what we know about nature. This was an amazing day. 
It says that he, it says in verse 7, he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, I didn't see anyone this morning walking to church like this. Yeah! Woo! <laughs> Did you see anybody do that? This guy was on fire. What would you do the first day you had good legs in your entire life? I'd go to like one of those Irish dancing classes, you know? Like, I'd get out there. I'd, wow. This is like a wow. And everyone knows it. But I share that story, and I know some people right away are going to be like, uh, miracles? Come on. They won't believe it. So we have to be able to defend this idea that we believe in miracles, right? It's a very simple thing. If someone pushes back on the idea of miracles, the argument is actually pretty simple. Jot this down. If God exists, miracles are possible. It's a very simple argument, but the other person can't deny it. If God exists, miracles are possible. Because by nature, God is omnipotent. He has all power. He can do anything. He can make a universe. He made the rules. He can overrule them. There is not an angel with a textbook in heaven, a physics textbook, saying, no, no, God, you cannot do that because it's against the rules. He made them. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So it's not at all a problem for God to do a miracle. Now, they might press about, like, well, yeah, you... Show me there is a God. That's not the point of this debate. The point of this debate is, if there is a God, miracles are possible. Can you prove there is no God? And guess what? They can't do that. Because if they try, they have to claim what? If they know there's not a God, what do they have to claim? All knowledge. Well, what does that make them? If they have all knowledge, what does that make them? Okay, see their predicament? So very quickly, you can get to the mind of the matter, which is you can't prove that God's not there. Therefore, if God exists, miracles are possible. It's a very simple argument, but it's very profound. But then we can move on and say this. Miracles are supernatural events that manifest divine intervention. Miracles are supernatural events that manifest divine intervention. So these miracles happen to show that there is a God and to show his, his manifestation in the world. They're supernatural. They're not natural. They're supernatural. That's what a miracle is. It's something impossible that reveals God's nature and his plan. I printed up in one of the books I used to prepare for this sermon, there's about 250 miracles in the Bible. Did you know that? 250 miracles in the Bible. If I read them all and told you the story of all of them, we'd be here a long time okay? Um, But the the miracles in the Bible, my goodness, creation is supernatural, not natural, because the universe couldn't pull itself out of a magic hat, okay? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Supernatural cause, creation's a miracle. Enoch, he didn't die. There was a flood in Noah that transcended the natural order. The languages at the Tower of Babel were all supernaturally mixed up. Plagues on Pharaoh, in Abraham's case, and then again when Moses was there, uh, all, all that God did to um, Egypt, my goodness, the plague after plague after plague, the sea parted, 
The Red Sea parted. That was a miracle. Some miracles lasted for 40 years. The quail covered the camp in Israel. Manna. Uh, manna came every day. Water was provided from the rock. God judged Nadab and Abihu. My goodness. God gave Solomon miraculous wisdom. Ravens fed Elijah. Bird delivery. Elijah raised the dead. Elisha raised the dead. Miracles, miracles, miracles. A dead guy came back to life because he was thrown on Elisha's bones. Miracle. God spoke to Job in a tornado. Daniel was saved from the lion's den. These are all Old Testament miracles. You go to the New Testament, you get the miracles of Jesus. He healed, fed the 5,000, walked on the sea, fed the 4,000, healed everyone in entire towns. He was transfigured before the disciples. He shone brighter than the sun. He told Peter to go catch a fish and there would be a coin in its mouth, and there was. Sometimes big, sometimes small. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the biggest miracle of all miracles, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he rules in heaven. There's uh, a bunch of miracles in the, in the book of Revelation, 38 of them that I counted that haven't even happened yet. They're big ones, and they're coming. The Bible is full of miracles, <clears throat> full of them. So we have to be ready to talk about why we believe in miracles and why they're in the Bible. They're supernatural events that manifest divine intervention. Jot this down. Miracles are impossible, rare, and serve to authenticate God's message. Impossible, rare, serve to authenticate God's message. Okay, so here's a good question. Well, why don't, why don't miracles happen? If God can make every lame person leap, why doesn't he do it? you got to know the definition of a miracle, okay? The definition of a miracle is it's impossible. If it kept happening over and over again, it would no longer be a miracle. It it's a miracle because it's impossible. We are not told to expect, and certainly we are never to demand a miracle from God. All right, let's just get our hearts straight on that. We are not told to expect, nor are we ever to demand a miracle from God, because that's not the reason they're in the Bible, to get what we want when we want it. You're missing the point. A miracle is impossible and rare, which means it won't happen, and it serves to authenticate God's message. That's why it's in there. At a special time in salvation history through a messenger, it serves the purpose of authenticating the message. Therefore, watch out for people who are miracle-on-demand people, the TV preachers who promise you a miracle. My dad used to babysit for our kids, and he would put on one of the TV preachers who promised miracles, and one day I came back, and he's like, my toe hurts, and he's got his toe lifted up toward the TV screen waiting for his miracle. He's joking. He goes, by the way, I've been listening for 30 minutes, and this guy hasn't said the name of Jesus once, and I'm like, yeah, it's a scam. Okay, don't be misled. The whole I've got your miracle waiting for you as soon as you send me a check it's a scam, brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. Miracles for money is a scam. Watch out, that's not the nature of miracles. We're also warned that there will be false signs and wonders, deceivers, false teachers. Don't get swept up in supernaturalism. If you don't understand why the natural order was warped and modified to begin with, you're going to miss the point. Seeing the natural order messed with is not the point. The natural world is pointing you to the supernatural world where the greatest things happen. This is why the people who came up to Jesus after he fed the 5,000 and they're like, we want more bread. He's like, you missed the point. Do a wonder. Do something. You missed the point. You missed the point. 
I came down from heaven. That's the miracle. You want more Wonder Bread? Do you see the duh of focusing on the miracle? Do you see that? you see the duh? If you're focusing on the miracle, you're missing what the miracle was about. Colossians 2.18, we'll put it up on the screen. It says this, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. In other words, they're selling you supernaturalism. Don't be misled. Often they promote holy things, holy artifacts, sacred rules for your body to get you more grace. They want money. It's a scam. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says this, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. If the miracles haven't led you to the truth, you're going to be duped by the lie. Do you see how that works? Miracles! Whoa! Supernatural! Whoa! Yeah, but do you see the truth behind it? You're going to get duped. You're missing what they're pointing you to. So, if God is so good, why does he allow so much suffering? Well, pain exists because we live in a fallen world. God uses pain to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. Suffering brings glory to God. All pain has an expiration date for believers in Christ. And now we face the problem of miracles. If miracles, if God exists, miracles are possible. They're supernatural events that manifest divine intervention. Miracles are impossible, rare, and they serve to authenticate God's message. All right, now number three, what do we learn from all this? Based on the miracles in the Bible, believe Jesus is the risen Lord. Based on the miracles in the Bible, believe Jesus is the risen Lord. So now we're at verse 11. He clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them. It's the portico called Solomon's. Peter saw it. He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? That right there, by the way, disqualifies all the modern miracle workers and what they try and get you to believe, all, the, all of the word of faith people, all of the name it, claim it people. They say it's by their power or piety that your miracle is waiting for you, and if you level up, your power or piety will get you the miracles too. It's all false teaching. Peter said, why do you look at us as though it's by our own power or piety that we have made this happen? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, those are the patriarchs, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release them. This is a really funny sermon that Peter's preaching. So the people are really blown away, and they all run to him for a sermon. So just for a second, give me a big gasp. Okay, one, two, three, gasp. Oh, stop! That's what he's doing. Stop it! You know what happened. You killed Jesus, all right? We know what happened. Don't look at me like I'm some sort of a wonder worker. Isn't this kind of a funny sermon tone? He's just like, stop it! He says in verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? He just shoots straight. He just shoots straight. All right, so based on the miracle in the Bible, 
We're to believe Jesus is the risen Lord. That's the point. Jot this down. Glorify Christ for the power he displays from heaven. Glorify Christ for the power he displays from heaven. A miracle is a sign. It's a sign. It's a wonder, right? Uh, it's a power. Those are the words used. But it's a, it's a sign that something is true. And it's a sign that Jesus has been risen from the dead because he did these things while he was on earth. In Isaiah 35, 6, Isaiah said about the, the era of the Messiah's reign, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Glorify him. In Luke 16, Jesus said something pretty profound. He was sharing a parable, but in the parable he said this, if the person doesn't believe the word of God, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. You can get this backwards. Well, if only God would show that person in my life, if he would just do something, if he would just, if he would just do something, then they would believe. You don't understand how belief works. If you have faith, if you believe what you've heard, the miracle, the supernatural, see, see that takes what you have and it amplifies and it authenticates it. If you don't have it, even the miracle won't do it. Do you understand? This is really shocking that Jesus would say this. Even if someone came back from the dead, I'm back! Ah! You think that's what it would take? They still won't believe. Because it's the word of God at work in their heart, and if they reject it, they won't believe because of the miracle. See how that works? So we're to glorify Christ for the power he displays from heaven. And we have to realize that the miracle is actually the lesser, the lesser of what God did in this man's life. Do you remember when they were lowering the, the lame man, the paralytic, down on his mat into Jesus' presence? Remember they dug through the roof and they lowered him down. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Do you remember? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then... The grumpy Pharisees, knowing their thoughts, it's mind reading, he said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise and walk. Now what was greater? Your sins are forgiven. Okay, much greater. This guy right now, his bones are decaying in the ground somewhere. Okay, and this guy in Acts 3, Somewhere right now, he's, he's in the ground. Okay, his legs don't work anymore. So your sins are forgiven is far greater than rise and walk. Would you all agree? Right now, this guy is still leaping in the presence of God because his sins are forgiven. Do you see how if we get our eyes off of that and we're like, give me a miracle. You're missing it. Your sins are forgiven. It's the greatest miracle that could ever happen to you in the spiritual realm. That's the point. Glorify Christ for the power he displays from heaven. Jot this down. Believe he is the holy, righteous author of life. We're going to spend another week on Peter's sermons. So we're not going to dig too deeply into what he says until next week. But basically he says Jesus is the one of a kind divine Messiah. He's the author of life. How tragic and foolish that you tried to kill the one who is the life giver, the pioneer of life. It could mean the giver, the originator of life. Life comes from him. You put him in a tomb. How dumb can you be? Of course he's risen again. God raised him from the dead. It says he is the holy and righteous one. 
In a sense, Christians are holy and righteous, but not in an essential sense. Uh, somebody came up to Jesus once and said, good teacher, and he's like, only one is good. God alone. Do you really mean that? It's in that sense that Peter calls him the Holy One. He's, he alone is holy eternally. He didn't have to be made holy. He is holy. That makes him divine. And he's the righteous one. He's alluding to several verses in Isaiah. He is the one. He's the only holy, the only righteous one, the divine Messiah. He's one of a kind. So believe he is the holy, righteous author of life. The resurrection proves that. And then jot this down. Repent and be forgiven of all of your sins. Repent and be forgiven of all of your sins. This is great news. He, he goes on to say this flat out in verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Great news, great news, great news. God wants to display his otherworldly power in your life in incredible ways. Ways that are greater than miracles. Ways that are greater than how did this dinner get on the table without us? Wow! Better than that, he wants to save your soul from hell forever. He wants to make you a new creation. He wants to give you a place in paradise for eternity. The miracles point to that. Do you want that? That is what it's all about. Repent and be forgiven of all of your sins. Hebrews 2, 3-4 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How will you escape if you neglect? Listen, you know now the miracles point to the Messiah. You know that you have to repent Turn from your sin, receive Jesus as Savior, and be born again, it says here, by faith in his name. And then not only physically, spiritually, faith in this, in this name will make strong who you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus will make you perfect in the presence of God. Well, Reformation Day is upon us, so it's appropriate to close with a Martin Luther story before I send the mic out to you for some questions. I hope you're ready. I hope I'm ready. You know Martin Luther, right? We've got a picture of him. They make statues out of him. He was a, he was a Catholic priest monk, really trying his best to please God, but he hated what he knew about God. He thought God was just expecting him to grovel his whole life, work his way into God's favor, and he knew he could never do it. Three times, God thundered in his heart with a verse the righteous shall live by faith. The third time that happened, Martin Luther was in Rome, and the steps of Pilate, get this, were miraculously picked up by an angel, according to Catholic teaching, and brought to Rome and put down there so that the devout could come and pay homage to Christ. So they believed in Martin Luther's day. So there he was, and if you would kneel, crawl your way to the top of the steps of Pilate, kissing the place where Jesus fell or sighed or bled, maybe there would be a blessing waiting for you at the top of the steps. And halfway up, he's just like, what am I doing? And God thundered in his heart, the righteous shall live by faith. It's through that verse that he was saved, that he abandoned his self-effort he abandoned this, this faulty supernatural view that Pilate's steps were airlifted by angel. To, he abandoned all of that 
And it was faith in Christ that saved him. And I would just exhort you today to abandon anything else that you're trusting in and to repent and put your faith in Christ that you might be born again, that one day you will appear in his presence, not just in perfect health, but perfect because of what Jesus did for you. Hey, I hope this sermon was a blessing to you, but I want to know if you have any questions. And I'm going to send the mic out to you now to see if you have any questions for me. I do need a runner. Joe, do you want to be my runner? I need a runner. You just need to put your hand up, and then Joe is kindly going to bring the mic to you. And you can have, ideally it would be on the topics we talked about today, but it could be about anything. So, all right, go ahead. Okay. You're Co- first, so go easy on me. Okay, a couple of things. How would you witness to someone who claims to have no regard for the Bible, that the stories were just man-made, made up? Yeah, the Bible, there's a whole, there are books written about how to defend the Bible. So what I would say is, generally, you want to ask questions and get to the heart of what the person is wrestling with. So is it the miracles? Is it the authors? Is it, usually people are suspicious of the authors or the, the, the miracles, you know, come on, a talking donkey, what is this, Shrek? I mean, they, you know, they've got a hard time with that. So there are some common complaints about the Bible, but there's very easy ways and you're not trying to win an argument. You're, you're getting them to see that this truly is a divine book that God has written over the course of you know, thousands of years and that they can trust the authors. They can trust the events were recorded by reliable witnesses. And if they give it a shot, the Holy Spirit will actually in their own heart uh, persuade them that it is true. Okay. Yeah. And the second part is uh, same person I'm thinking of um, who believes in essentially reincarnation, multiple lives to get it right, etc. Yeah. So what do you say if someone believes in reincarnation? Again, ask questions to see if that, sometimes it ties into kind of new age beliefs, sometimes it's more of like a historical Hinduism. So try and figure out where they're getting that from. Um, but uh, I would first of all go to the nature of man. Um, we know that we're, our bodies were made of dust, you know, so we're, we're put in the ground. So therefore you're isolating the conversation to the spirit. Um, and I would just start asking questions. On what basis does a spirit end up in a different body. Does God do that? And what you'll find is, um, let's say that reincarnation has like a management room. And if you step into that management room and you start asking questions, who's in charge of it? Who decides if you come back as a bug or a king? Or uh, who, it'll, it'll turns out that there are really no answers to any of that. So uh, big moral problems. Who decides who's lived a good life? They don't have an answer. Um, and really big problems with the idea that you have no basis at all to believe that you will get another chance. There's no basis at all to believe that. So then you go in with the scripture that says man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. Let's get ready for that because that's what God has told us is going to happen after we die. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Who's got another question? Raise your hand up. Really want you to see that church is a place where you can bring your questions and where you can find answers or even have conversations if there isn't like a flat-out clear answer, we could at least talk about it. You're making Joe work. That's good. He's going to need to burn those calories if he's going to go down that hurricane trip, right? All right, go ahead. What are your thoughts on uh, Christians praying to God asking for miracles? Yeah, what I would say is remember miracles are miracles because they never happen, okay? So never feel that you're entitled to one. 
Don't make the mistake of reading something happening. And the, the axe head floats. Well, why isn't that happening in my life, God? You know, as if he's doing something wrong or you're doing something wrong. You have to fundamentally understand the purpose of miracles. They don't happen ever. That's the point. Uh, so just get that locked in. Um, and remember not to be deceived. The whole I've got your miracle waiting for you guy uh, is a false teacher who wants your money. So don't be duped. Don't be deceived. Um, most of the time, the way God works is in ways that are not fully detectable. So you'll pray about something, and God will absolutely do incredible, unbelievable, unexplainable things in your life, even if they don't meet the definition of a miracle. Okay? And I heard one pastor talk about this before, and he's like, <clears throat> if God does something in your life that you know is incredible and unbelievable and unexplainable, and you know he did it, and he disguised his entire activity throughout the process, isn't that in a way greater than a miracle? How did he stay cloaked? So I wouldn't feel like that's some secondhand gift of God. When he, and he will answer you and do unexplainable, unbelievable, unfathomable things. And if he remains undetected, that's actually really cool. And it demonstrates his sovereignty and his goodness at a really high level. So you can absolutely always pray for that. God, you got to come through. This is impossible. Bring all of that to him. More often than not, you won't need a miracle for him to make that happen. Okay? Who's got another question? A couple more. Oh, all right. Go ahead. Put your hand up. I think you got time for one more after her. So, Can you please elaborate on how miracles don't bring people to know God? So you said that believing in God doesn't come from miracles. Right. So I'm thinking like Bible times, Jesus performed all these miracles and that was a way for people to believe that he was in fact the savior on earth. So I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the idea that miracles don't cause people to believe in God. Like I have a family member that her son was healed miraculously and that's why she is a believer right now. So I would, I'm not understanding yeah. that part. I would say she's a believer because God's word and God's spirit worked in her heart and the miracle amplified that. I wouldn't say it's because of the miracle because if you subtract God's spirit and God's word, she wouldn't be a believer. And if Jesus isn't on the throne right now, she wouldn't be a believer. So it's the spiritual realities that the natural thing amplifies. But the natural thing doesn't cause those. And we know that because the, the officials in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had risen from the grave. They knew that and they still didn't believe. So a miracle doesn't cause faith. Um, a miracle gives a sign, and then uh, the people who, through God's Spirit and God's Word, believe will, will feel emboldened that their faith is true. Now, the miracle may propel some people through God's Word and through God's Spirit to believe, but the miracle doesn't cause their faith. So a couple of verses I would think of is when the disciples came back and they're like, the demons submit to our names! You remember what Jesus said? Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice what? That your names are written in heaven, right? Okay, so, yeah, that's nice. Your names are written in heaven. It's the spiritual thing that transcends the, the, the natural thing that's bent. Um, and uh, I guess I would just also say that um, the miracle, uh, according to what Jesus said, even if a person rises from the dead, they won't believe. It, it, therefore, it's not effectual. It, it doesn't cause in their heart what's to happen. It's the word of God, the spirit of God, and the risen Lord on the throne. When the wise men came to town, they were following the star, right? Oh, star of wonder, star. And then where did they go? Did they go right to the manger? Where did they go? Where, 
Herod. Why? Why? Because who did Herod call? No, who did Herod call? The scribes. Bring the word of God out. Bring the word of God out. Even the wise men needed an encounter with God's word and then God's son who they worship. If all they had was the star, they'd be missing what really saves them. Okay? Uh, so I hope that answers your question. Okay, one more. We've got time for one more. Who's got one more question? This is awesome. I hope you're enjoying this. This is exciting. We've got one more up here. Oh, where? No, we've got to get you on the mic so the people online can hear. Yeah. How do, you, how do you explain, or when someone talks to you about the miracle at Fatima, when the ground opened and the virgin mother came down? Yeah, I won't go into details on miracles about the virgin mother or the Catholic Church or some specific signs. Uh, what I would say is this. Um, God is more than able to cause signs and wonders to happen today. Okay, so if something does happen, it's not beyond this, you know, possibility. The purpose of miracles, according to Scripture, are to exalt the name of Jesus Christ alone. So uh, any, anything that happens to exalt any other name uh, is either not legitimate or it's not be, being used in a legitimate way. Often those miracles create this uh, attraction for a person to try and level up their effort, their devotion. Now I have this special prayer. Now I know about this special thing. Now I can find this this almost shortcut to get more grace with God. All of that is illegitimate. The purpose of a miracle, the purpose of a sign, the purpose of a wonder is never to make you feel like now there's this bonus path where you can get closer to God through that. That's all false teaching, okay? That's all false teaching. Um, so we just have to avoid that chasing mystical paths to a closer, better relationship with God. And the last thing I would say is this. If there is anything lacking in your confidence before God you need to go to Jesus Christ. You don't go to any mystical place. You don't go to a vortex. You don't find some magic vial. You don't find some faith healer because what you're struggling with is the sufficiency of Christ to save your soul forever. You don't need anything else, ever. All of the miracles show he is the Messiah. So don't go chasing supernatural things because Jesus is the Lord of all. All right, let's invite the worship team up here. Come on out, worship team. Worship team's going to come out. We've got one more song that we're going to sing, and then I'll come up and pray at the end. If you have a question that didn't get answered, please feel free to come up to me after the service. And thank you so much for sharing your questions with us today. All right, let's stand up, and we'll sing one more song. <laughs>